So, be a vegetarian. We're done. Yeah. No, that's not really what Paul's talking about, is it? Uh, Paul's got a bigger idea in mind. As a matter of fact, I think it's an idea that we really need to grab onto uh, in these days. Uh, not just because Thanksgiving's coming up, and like we referred to, for a lot of us, Thanksgiving, when the family gets together, those are, are really joyful sorts of occasions. Uh, for others of us, when the family gets together, we wonder what's going to go wrong. And probably for most of us, we're somewhere in between. We say there are going to be a lot of really wonderful things about this, but we need to make sure to avoid these topics and we need to make sure, you know, that we're, uh, we don't leave out that alcohol when that person is around. Whatever it is, we have these issues or these problems about getting together, don't we? As a matter of fact, any time you have community, you're going to have disagreement in one way or another, aren't you? It's going to happen. I mean, if, if one of the great things about uh, counseling, or actually, I don't know if it's the great thing, but one of the things that I do when I do premarital counseling with couples is I, I tell them conflict is going to come. It's going to come. And I'm not telling you that because I want you to think less of your marriage, but I'm telling you that because I want you to be prepared so that you will have a great marriage. Conflict is going to come. So how do we have healthy conflict with each other instead of conflict that tears down and breaks and destroys? How do we have, maybe in the, the less important sense, uh, thanksgivings and, and holidays together where we enjoy each other instead of where we just argue without ever stopping? How do we be a church that really says we really love each other and we have our differences, but no matter what, we are doing this together. We are in it together. How do we have marriages where we do the same thing? Well, strangely enough, Paul gives us the insight that we need in this passage about food sacrificed to idols. Of course, none of us probably have ever been in a place where we ask this question. If you start off this verse, you start off the passage in chapter 8, verse 1 in 1 Corinthians, it says, now about food sacrificed to idols. And if maybe you're reading along in your Bible and you get to this, this verse and you say, not about me, turn the page. I've never uh, seen an idol. I've never watched people worship an idol. I have never seen animal sacrifice. This obviously has nothing to do to me. But see, Paul answers. This is a question the Corinthians had written to him about. Paul, what do we do? Everywhere we look, when we go into the market, most of the meat came from the temple where people sacrificed it to idols. And we're not idol worshipers. You know, can we eat that food or not? We get invited sometimes to functions. Our old friends, but you know, before we knew Jesus or our family that doesn't know Jesus, when there's a big major event in life, they say, come to the temple with us and celebrate have a feast what do we do when that happens and there were two groups of people at least two groups of people in the Corinthian church and one of them says what's the problem idols aren't a real thing they're quoting directly from the old testament when they say that there are passages like in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah says are you worshiping a hunk of wood 
Because you know it's just a hunk of wood, right? There's nothing behind that. There's nothing going on there. What kind of person would worship a hunk of wood? You're saying we know our Bibles, Paul. This isn't really a problem. By the way, my voice is going to last like two more minutes if I keep talking like this. I'm going to have to take it down. We know this isn't a problem. We have knowledge. And there's another group in the church, and they're not really sure. They say, well, we used to worship idols. And you're eating that meat. If we buy that meat in the marketplace that's been sacrificed to idols, if we go to that temple and participate in that meal, it feels like we're worshiping something that's not God. It feels like we're giving our loyalty to, to someone and something else. What do we do, Paul? And Paul answers this specific question by giving them a big principle. He says, we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Get that? Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Let me see if I can uh, give you an idea of how this works. Have you ever been in an argument in your life? Maybe some of you once or twice this morning. Yeah, we've all been in an argument. And what do you find happens in an argument? At some point, it just becomes about who's right, doesn't it? It's not really about, let's find the answer to this difficult question. It's not really about, I just love you so much, and I, I really, it just breaks my heart, you know, that you have this, this wrong belief. At some point, it becomes about, I'm right, you idiot. Why won't you just believe what I say? Because knowledge, even though it's a good thing, can do that in our hearts, can't it? Or maybe there's something wrong with our hearts in the first place, where instead of seeing knowledge as this good gift and blessing from the Lord that sets us free in wonderful ways, we start being more concerned about being right or about how they're wrong. If you ever tune in to uh, political radio, I don't think it matters, conservative or, or liberal, You ever tune into that? I I want you to stop next time that happens and think about how much are they talking about the things they believe are right and good and true and how much are they talking about the the people who are wrong and how bad they are as a result. I'll give you a hint. I've done this exercise and I don't listen to political talk radio anymore because there's so little that actually spends time talking about Here is the good and the beautiful. There's so much more that says, I can't believe those idiots over there. Because knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us arrogant. Knowledge makes us prideful if we're not careful. And Paul says, if all you're concerned about in your conversations with each other is who is right and who is wrong, then that knowledge isn't going to help you. Let's talk a little bit more about about knowledge for a moment. First of all, I don't want you to walk out of here this morning thinking that I'm saying knowledge is a bad thing. Uh, Not just because I spent a lot of money on my education and I don't want it to be worthless, but because knowledge actually is a good thing. Remember, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, and you shall know the truth. And what's the truth going to do? It will set you free. 
Knowledge is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. See, Paul speaks first to the group who knows. He says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, even if there are powerful creatures or powerful beings, yet for us, none of them matter. There is only one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't care where the meat came from. I don't care if it was sacrificed to idols. My knowledge sets me free to eat whatever is put in front of me. That's a good thing, right? We don't have to be vegetarians after all. Apologies to any of you who are vegetarians. Knowledge really gives us freedom. Think about it this way. What does knowledge do for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ? All of the world is trying to find a way to justify themselves, whether before God or before the rest of humanity. But you know, if you're in Jesus Christ, that God is pleased with you in Christ. And that means no more guilt. And that means no more legalism. I just have to do these things so everyone will think I'm good. We don't have to live like that. We can be set free by our knowledge. All the rest of the world loses their mind when the wrong person gets elected. But you know that God is king. And his kingdom is coming. And that there's no king who will make everything right other than Jesus Christ our Lord. Knowledge sets you free. The election comes and the person you didn't vote for wins. And you're not despairing because your knowledge has set you free. All the rest of the world despairs in the face of evil. Uh, you know, this, this whole global warming stuff, wherever you stand on climate change, okay, I'm not making an argument for or against this morning. I'm not smart enough to do that. And it's not the point. But you know, I think the, the primary effect of talking about global warming or, or climate change or whatever we call it these days has been to make people despair. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that in myself. I pick up the, the, uh, the news and, and I read an article and it talks, you know, the world's warmed some more and we're not going to be able to stop it and everything will be terrible and it'll be drought all the time. All the rest of the world despairs in the face of the broken condition of our world whether it's the environment, whether it's politics, whether it's the fact that, you know, we don't, we never seem to have peace, whether it's the economy crumbling, whether it's China rising, whatever it is, all the rest of the world ultimately says we're doomed. You heard of the doomsday clock? Remember this? It's not in the news as much these days, but especially during the Cold War. I am old enough for that. Especially during the Cold War, yeah, there was this threat. I, I didn't have the nuclear weapons, nuclear attack drills like I know some of you went through. But what does that say about our hope in the world that we live in? 
inching closer to midnight. All the rest of the world despairs in the face of evil, but you know that God has already judged evil in the cross. That good has the last word because Jesus rises from the dead. Not because of wishful thinking, not because we're doing this, because something really happened in our world 2,000 years ago that said the rules that we think are permanent are not, and even death will die. Knowledge gives us freedom to live in the truth. But there are problems with knowledge, aren't there? In verse 7, Paul, remember, has just said, you know an idol is nothing, and you know that there's only one God. But verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. See, our knowledge isn't complete, is it? Anyone in here know everything? Yeah, that's, that's part of what Paul means in uh, verse 1 here. About food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. I'm sorry, verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought. What does that mean? Excuse me. Makes me very sad. It means that it's so easy for us to think that we, we've got the whole of it. We understand it completely. We know everything. But we don't. None of us do. I mean, it, look throughout history. Right? If history teaches us anything, it's that we really don't know much at all. If the history of science teaches us anything, it's that... You know, the things that we think are true about the world we live in can change drastically, not just from generation to generation, but from decade to decade and even from year to year. <coughs> Excuse me. We just always know less than we think we know. That doesn't mean we don't know anything. That doesn't mean your knowledge is never helpful. It just means if you put your trust in, I completely understand everything that's going on here. Man, you are headed for a fall. Knowledge puffs up, makes you arrogant, and God will reveal, oh, you, you really didn't know as much as you thought. Think about uh, what we've been through in COVID. People on every side of that issue making pronouncements all the time, right? Here's the truth. Here's what you need to do. This will solve the problem. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not preaching cynicism. I'm not preaching despair. I think, actually, what we need to do is step back and say, we don't know all the truth, but this is the best of what we know, and we should live by that. That, I, I think, is the answer. But we don't like those sorts of responses, do we? We'd rather have something sure and certain. Not everyone possesses the knowledge that they need. We know that because no one actually has all of the knowledge, 
And sometimes when we know, other people around us may not. And what happens if, if you know that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols? You know that. You have that conviction. But some people in your church don't know that. And if they go and, and they actually eat this food, they are engaging in worship toward this idol. Their, their mind, they will be deceived. Their conscience will be broken in the midst of that. And it's no good just looking at people and saying, you just need to know more, is it? Yeah, one of the things that I've discovered in life is that uh, when I went to college, uh, I was at a Christian university, and we studied, well, what do non-Christians think? And uh, they said, well, non-Christians think X, Y, and Z. And here are the reasons why the non-Christians are wrong, A, B, and C. There, now you can answer all the objections. And that was good and useful education, good and useful learning. And then I, I went out into the wider world, and I, I thought, man, if I can just find some non-Christians, I'll just tell them A, B, and C, and they'll stop believing X, Y, and Z, and they'll meet Jesus, and everything will be great. Does it work like that? No. Why not? Because what we know isn't just connected to bare facts coming into our minds, but it's connected to all the feelings and all the preconceptions and all the desires that are in our hearts. I heard Tim Keller quote in a sermon once uh, that people come to believe things not primarily because they are convinced through logical argumentation, but based on how much they like the people who are teaching. Yeah, before you start saying unbelievable, man, those losers, I want you to remember that you and I are like that too. You and I are like that too. What books do you read? What people do you watch on TV? What news do you listen to? Do you usually think, you know, I'm a conservative and I'd really like to listen to some liberal, you know, talk shows right now. Let me pick up that liberal guy's book. Or vice versa. No, that's not what we do. Do you think, uh, gosh, you know, I, I really want to know if God is out there or not. Let me pick up a bunch of books written by atheists. No. You go to people that you trust, that you already think those guys are probably right, sometimes because they agree with your conclusions. All of us struggle with this. All of us struggle to identify truth in one way or another, without exception. We can't just give people answers. It's not that simple. We actually have to live life with them. Doesn't that stink? Wouldn't it be simpler if we could just, like, here, read this. That'll take care of everything. Walk away. Now, I, I say this, some of uh, I especially if you're watching you know, online and you don't know me personally and you're hearing me say basically that I have a general dislike of people. No, that's not really true. <laughs> it's good to live life together. As a matter of fact, we grow when we live life together in ways we would never grow if we just read books or just listened to TED Talks or whatever else is out there. You know, in Jesus, uh, I'm going to give you a preview of a sermon that's coming after Christmas. Uh, when, when God wanted to show the world who he was, yes, he gave us the Bible, but he didn't make a Zoom call, did he? He came in person. Jesus Christ in the incarnation. John 1, 
14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If we want to do ministry the way Jesus does ministry, got to live with people. So this is the problem with knowledge. First of all, uh, none of us have complete knowledge. Secondly, uh, not everyone even has the basic knowledge that they need to get by. These are the big issues. So how do we use our knowledge rightly then? Well, knowledge needs to submit to love. It was there in that very first uh, verse. We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Because see, love never makes the mistake that knowledge does. Love never says, how can you be so wrong? Love never says, the important thing is that everyone knows that I am right. Love steps into people's lives and walks beside them and says, I will go where you go. I will live as you live. And I will do so to point you toward the truth. See, it's, it's more about our relationship with people than it is uh, about being able to provide airtight answers for every question that's out there. Why is this so important? Because the careless exercise of knowledge destroys people for whom Christ died. That's what Paul says here. He says, you have the right, you have the authority because of your knowledge, to go and eat whatever meat you want. But if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. That's a tough one for us to swallow. And I think that there is resistance in every one of our hearts toward that idea. Because basically what Paul is saying is that your rights end where your neighbor's good is affected. Not because they're not still our rights. Not because we're you know, engaging in something that is inherently wrong. If you go into the temple in this case and you're eating the meat sacrificed to idols so you can have a relationship with these people who don't know Jesus, but your, your weak brother sees you and they start thinking, I guess we can worship more God than just the one God. I guess maybe Jesus is just one God among many. Paul says, that's on you. You are destroying your brother for whom Christ died or your sister for whom Christ died. Moreover, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. 
Don't think that this will just affect your relationship with that person. You'll say, oh gosh, that was a shame. You know, I feel bad about that. It will also hurt your Lord and Savior. You will let him down. You will disappoint him. You will say, Jesus, I don't care that you love that person. You'll crucify him all over again. So what does Paul say? Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And we're vegetarians again. Why are we talking about this? One of the things that I'm so proud of in our church, I'm so grateful for, is that over the last year and a half, uh, we didn't all agree. We still don't all agree on all the choices that we made. Were we worshiping outside? Were we worshiping inside? Are we wearing masks? Are we socially distanced? You know, are we getting vaccinated or not? We had all of these disagreements, but we're all still here. We're all still here. Praise God, we're all still here. Because how stupid would we be if we said, I'm going to let a mask or a vaccine or social distancing come between myself and the brother or sister whom Christ died for? I mean, stupid is not a strong enough word. How blind would we be if we did that? But here's something that I know we do. I know that we are people, not because we're especially bad, but because we're people who look out into the world and we see all those folks who disagree with us and we see all those folks who really do want to take away our rights and do we stand up to fight or do we stand up to love? Because that's the challenge, isn't it? Did Jesus die for us so that in the 70, 80, 90 years or however long we have on this planet, we can eat meat? Did Jesus die for us so that in the 70, 80, 90 years that we have on this planet, we can gather in our buildings and worship the way we want to? Is that really why Jesus died? Did Jesus die for us so that our lives would be a little more pleasant for 70, 80, 90 years? Or did he die for us because he's building a brand new world and he wants us to be a part of that? And he says, in the meantime, I want you to be just like Jesus. And everywhere you go and everything that you do, you take that good news that this world, this life is not the end. It is not everything that you've been looking for. And you've been placing this weight of expectation on your momentary pleasure here and saying that needs to satisfy me forever. And it could never bear up under that because it's broken. Because it's broken. You think Jesus is prouder of people who worship comfortably in their church buildings, exercising all of their rights because they've got knowledge and they know the score and they know there's really a God and for some reason he really requires that we get in this building on Sunday mornings you know, and sing some songs and, and listen to the word. 
These are all good things, by the way. Is that really what will please him? Is that what Jesus did? Who did Jesus hang out with again? Yeah, the tax collectors, the sinners, the addicted, the broken, the people who had nothing to give him. That's what he did. That's where he went. That's what he was about. You know, there's a a moment where, I, I can't remember where in the Gospels this is. I'm sorry, it's just coming to me right now. But there's a moment uh, where Jesus is, uh, he's preaching in a town, and he's having a lot of success. You know, everyone's coming, and they want to be healed. They want to hear Jesus. And Jesus says, let's go to the other towns too, because they're waiting to hear. How often do we say, no, we're good here. It's fine, Jesus. <laughs> we'll just... We'll be stationed here where we're comfortable, where we're happy, where it's easy. How many of us, uh, you know, maybe look at the things that are happening in the state capitol and we think, man, I want to move out of California. You never think that? Let me tell you, first of all, you're okay if you think that. But let me ask you, who's going to tell California about Jesus if we all leave? What if God's got you right where he wants you? Because he didn't call you to minister to a healthy world. He didn't call you to be as happy as you could possibly figure out for 70, 80, 90 years, as comfortable and secure. He called you for an eternity of joy in his presence. And he said, I'm giving you some time before I'm I'm bringing you there. And I want you to bring as many people with you as you can. We need to be people who are more concerned with loving our fellow church members more concerned with loving the people who live next door, more concerned with telling the truth about Jesus than we are with getting our joy and our pleasure to the fullest extent of our rights. That's what Paul wants us to know. That's what God left for us in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to continue to explore that idea over the next couple of weeks.